This is The Big Question, where we do our best to answer questions from young disciples at Grace Presbyterian Church and to be at peace with the mysteries that we can't explain. I'm Pastor Mark, your host, and in this episode, we have questions from Sam M., Emmeline, Tim, Josiah, and Sam VR. First, we'll tackle a few serious questions, then we'll look at this episode's big questions, and we'll wrap things up at the end with a few fun questions. Let's start with our serious questions. Our first question comes from Sam M. He asks, If someone isn't a believer when they die, do they go straight to hell? Well, Sam, to find out what the Bible teaches about what happens after we die, let's turn to the Westminster Confession, which gives us a helpful summary of the essential doctrines of Scripture. Chapter 32 covers the state of men after death in section 1, and here's what it says. After death, their souls, which neither die or sleep, having an immortal subsistence, immediately return to God. So, the souls of all human beings, when they die, return to God. Now let's see what happens after that. It says, The souls of the righteous, being then made perfect in holiness, are received into the highest heavens, where they behold the face of God in light and glory, waiting for the redemption of their bodies. So, those who are in Christ are received in the presence of God and then wait until the final judgment when their souls and bodies will be reunited. So then, here's what happens to those who are not in Christ. It says, The souls of the wicked are cast into hell, where they remain in torments and utter darkness, reserved to the judgment of the great day. So again, those who are not in Christ are waiting for final judgment, just like those who are. But they're waiting in a place of torment, separated from God's presence. And this is why it's so important to receive and rest on Jesus Christ alone for salvation. And remember this too. People are not condemned to hell because they reject Jesus. Everyone is already under condemnation because of our own sin. By resting in Christ, though, we are delivered from that condemnation. And now Emmeline asks, what do you do in your meetings for the presbytery? Well, Emmeline, following the example of the New Testament church, our congregations in the Presbyterian church in America are all governed not by one individual, but by a group of elders. The Greek word for elder is presbyteros, which literally means old man. Authority is entrusted by Jesus to the elders together, and we have some special terminology to describe how that works. A group of elders governing a single congregation are called a session. When all the elders of a particular region get together, that's a presbytery. And when all the elders in the nation meet, that's a general assembly. So, our presbytery is called Siouxland's Presbytery, and it consists of all the churches in South Dakota, North Dakota, and Minnesota. And when we meet, we review all the work of the churches, we pray for one another, and we discuss any church business that has come up since our last meeting. We have a committee that reviews the minutes of each session to make sure that everything is in order, 
And there's another committee, the one that I serve on, that interviews candidates for ordination, making sure that they're equipped to teach. Occasionally, uh, a member of one of our churches might dispute something that the elders of their church have done. The presbytery is a higher jurisdiction, so it can review the actions of the sessions and determine whether or not they are proper. And this kind of oversight is something that you see in the New Testament, too. When the apostles correct things that are being taught wrong or, or done wrong in the churches. Now, my favorite part of Presbytery, though, is the worship service, where all the elders of our region worship and commune together with Christ. It's such an encouraging reminder of how God is working, not just in our church, but everywhere in his kingdom. Now it's time for the big question. Our big question this week comes from Tim. So let's give Tim a round of applause. Here's Tim's question. Why did Jesus have to die on the cross to pay for our sins instead of doing a miracle? One of the things, Tim, that I've noticed in answering young people's questions week after week is that there are certain themes, certain questions that come up again and again. And I think this repetition points us to the fact that these are important concerns that everybody has. Your question touches on one of the big ones, which is why God works salvation the way that he does. If God is all-powerful, it seems like there must have been an easier way to do it, right? Well, the two hardest parts of salvation for us to understand are, first, uh, why it has to take so long, and secondly, why did Jesus have to suffer so much? If you go back to Genesis 3 and you read God's curse on Adam and Eve and the serpent, you have to wonder why he only gives us a hint of Jesus coming. It says in Genesis 3.15 that the seed of the woman will bruise the head of the serpent's seed, but couldn't God have just said, hey, I'm going to forgive your sins and defeat Satan right here and now, and just snapped his fingers and, and, and done it? Why did we have to wait for thousands and thousands of years of sin and death and suffering when God had already made up his mind to save? The same thing applies to the cross. Why did Jesus have to suffer and die on the cross? If he had the power to walk on water and to raise Lazarus from the dead, then why didn't he just work a miracle to conquer sin and death instead of having to die and rise again? Well, the funny thing is, the two questions really do go together. It's because salvation takes so long that we question why Jesus had to come and to die in the first place. But if we took away the first question, we would find the answer to the second one a lot easier. Here's what I mean. People ask, why didn't God do something about sin? And why didn't Jesus just do a miracle instead of dying? But the Bible teaches God did do something about sin. He sent Jesus. And that Jesus did perform a miracle because what was the resurrection if not a miracle? It's just that because God's work stretches out over time, we don't see it for what it really is. As I've explained before, Jesus had to die an atoning death on the cross in order to pay the price of our sin, because that's how bad sin is. That's why it took so much to fix the problem. 
There's just no easier way because sin isn't easy to fix. Apart from Jesus, it's impossible to fix. Only a human being like Adam could undo the damage of Adam's sin, and yet only a divine being like God had the power to do it. And so Jesus, who is fully God and fully man, was the only possible Savior of mankind. There could be no forgiveness of sin, though, without an atoning sacrifice. All of the sacrifices of the Old Testament were there to teach us what had to happen. For the most common of sins, a person in the Old Testament would have to make an elaborate sacrifice. The book of Leviticus includes details, instructions for all the different types of sacrifices, for the procedures for how each one had to be done and who had to do it and when it had to be done. None of them were easy to make. They all took time. They had to be done exactly the right way. And they were constant. The whole calendar every year was built around the need for sacrifice. And even so, despite all that effort, none of those sacrifices ever paid the price of a single sin. They just looked forward to the one sacrifice of Jesus. But the lesson they taught was how serious a problem sin really was. That sin makes us unfit, unclean, unable to be in God's presence. It requires extreme measures to to make up for sin. And sin is a problem that keeps coming back again and again. These are all lessons that the sacrifices of the Old Testament teach us. Now, the reason that we had to be taught these lessons is because we minimize the seriousness of our sin. We can't understand why it was so hard to save us, why Jesus had to suffer and sacrifice so much. But the reason he did was that our sin is so much worse than we think. The beauty of this, though, is that it means that the more you realize the seriousness of your own sin, the more you appreciate Jesus and his work for you. Instead of feeling worse and worse about yourself, you feel better and better about Jesus. Salvation is a miracle from beginning to end. The resurrection was a great miracle. And when the power of the Holy Spirit awakens us to new life in Jesus, that is a great miracle too. Before we close, let's look at a few fun questions. First, Josiah asks, how many verses are in the Bible? Well, I'm pretty sure I've answered this question before, but I couldn't remember, so I had to go back and count all over again. It turns out that in the 66 books of the Bible, there are 31,102 individual verses. In the Old Testament, you'll find 23,145 And then in the New Testament, another 7,957. But, Josiah, it's important to remember that the verse numbers are not part of the original. Neither are the chapter numbers. The numbers were added later to help us navigate through the text, but they're not inspired by God as part of Scripture. That's why the Reader's Bible that we give people when they join the church doesn't include the verse numbers. Because while they're helpful for looking up passages, they can also distract from the process of deep reading. There's nothing wrong with the verse numbers. It's just important to remember that they were a later addition. And now Sam VR asks, 
can we do a church track meet this spring? Sam, we can, but I don't think we will. The elders really try to keep the church focused on matters of faith and practice, and organizing a track meet is a little outside the scope of our authority. But having said that, we always encourage initiative from members of the church. Remember, we like to let good things run wild. That means that if you wanted to organize a track meet, I would be more than happy to attend. I probably wouldn't compete myself because I do have an unfair advantage thanks to my incredible agility and speed. But I could root for everyone else and I'd be happy to fire this starting pistol. That's all for now. Thanks for listening to The Big Question. Remember, if we're going to find the answers, then we have to ask the questions. So never be afraid to ask and never be satisfied with easy answers. The truth will stand up to scrutiny. Until next time, keep asking the big questions.